Lord, we love you and we thank you. As um, we heard roosters crowing, some of us, as some of us drove in and we saw the sun rise and shine on our face. God, we pray that it was a reminder of your faithfulness to us, that mercies that didn't exist yesterday are new to us today. And God, our God is still on the throne. And God, as we men of God rise up uh, to learn of you, uh, to have your truth illuminated to us so that we can live in a way that would bring honor and glory to you. Would you do just that? Would you use this weak and broken vessel, Lord God, as insufficient as I am to proclaim your all-sufficient truths? And it's in your darling son Jesus' name that we pray today and say amen and amen. Hey! It's 5 o'clock, baby. You know, it's 5. Is it 6? I don't know what it is. It's way too early for me to be up with you. That's all I know. Uh, I'm usually kind of rolling over and getting kids uh, bathed and fed or ready for school now, but it's, it's a pleasure. Um, thank you for having me. Um, it's been a joy. I just want to take every opportunity while I can to make sure I let every one of you know, especially in the last uh, six months to maybe a year and a half, that it's, it's a pleasure serving next to you, um, being your brother, worshiping, leading, serving, listening. Um, I'm part of the best pastoral team in the world. Shout out. Yo, Stokey, what up, baby? No, I'm just saying, uh, you know, best in the world, and uh, it's a privilege for me to be a part of that. Um, I've, I've really just uh, uh, learned uh, and felt loved and been taken care of so, so, so very well here. Um, and I just don't want to uh, miss any opportunity to shout that out. Um, the title this morning is No More Foolishness. And I just wanted to use that as an opportunity to act the fool today. Um, but it's a question. Um, maybe if it was grammatically correct, maybe the title would have been, Is There No More Room for Any Foolishness? You know, they put us pastors under such constraint. They actually want us to turn our titles for our messages in like a week before. But God is doing things, right? I can't be under those types of constraints. But is there any more room for any more foolishness? That's what I really want to say. Um, so maybe if you got a pen, you can write that in if you wanted to. Um, you know, we, most of us in here, the great majority of us are, are fathers. And so um, we have, um, especially if you have you know, if you've got one at least through elementary school or at least the middle school, one of the, the, the most, to me, fun times and most nostalgic kind of times in fatherhood is when you got those little toddlers bumping around the house. We've got an 18, 19-month-old uh, baby who is kind of, that's a baby girl just kind of taking over our whole lives and uh, didn't really understand what that was about. I had two boys first, and then I had this little girl. And I mean, the sass is a real epidemic. It is, it is for real. I didn't know what that was until we got it. This sister is running things. But, um, you know, one of the things that we look forward to is you kind of look forward to these, uh, the first Christmas together, first birthday. And especially when it comes to holiday season, you know, mom gets really excited. I don't know about your wife. I could just speak to my wife. But my wife has wardrobes that are kind of set for the season. You understand what I'm saying? Right. So we've got these little, you know, smock dresses 
dresses that have little turkeys on them for Thanksgiving, and we got pumpkins for the fall, and we got butterflies for the spring, and so wifey has kind of got all this stuff seasonally coordinated, and she's ready to roll. And I could tell you right now that in August, she's already thinking about Christmas, so much so that she says, you know what, my baby wears a probably about an 18 to 24 month right now, so when I go Christmas shopping, I'm going to need to kind of get a 2T, so she already has all the sizes figured out everything, right? She's looking forward to it, dressing her little baby up like some little elf or some little gnome or some little reindeer, right? She's already kind of looking at these things, and the child will kind of grow up in the nostalgia of the moment. She's picking up on mommy's energy, right? And so as she gets into elementary school, first and second grade, she's excited about the Christmas feeling, and then she starts to get into the Christmas narrative, doesn't she? My little girl would like, she'll be one at some point if we don't burst the bubble. My little girl will come into to, to, to the room and she'll jump and she'll say, Dad, what's Santa going to bring me for? Come on, talk to me now. You got to act like you're a black church out there. Come on, talk to me now. I'm saying, they got to act like, what's that? But anyway, so what you going to bring me for Christmas, right? And you know, it'll be cute at least for what? Maybe through elementary school? We'll believe this. We'll hold on to it. And, you know, most of y'all, if you're like me, we'll, there ain't no harm in it. We'll let you hold on to it as long as you want to hold on to it, right? And you know what? But at some point, you kind of get through elementary school, and then it comes to be Christmas, and you're kind of in your pre-adolescent stage. You're kind of like nine years old. And you know, it's, uh, it's starting to be around December the 1st, and you pull your ugly Christmas sweater out the drawer. And you put it on and you put your red bow and I can imagine my little girl walking into her fourth or fifth grade, maybe sixth grade class. And all of a sudden she walks in there with the reindeer and the bells jingling on jingling, ling, ling, ling. And then all the kids just going to look at her and say, no, that's not what we do. And all of a sudden, all the cookies we baked for Santa the night before. All the Christmas presents under the tree, all the ornaments, all of a sudden we start reevaluating all of that because it kind of looks foolish to still hang on to that narrative, doesn't it? And slowly but surely, do we have to burst the bubble as parents? Nope. We kind of just let the thing unfold by itself and then all of a sudden it's like the world kind of caves in and so we slowly start losing the grip of that narrative because to the rest of our social surrounding, it looks foolish, right? And if we were to maintain those little ugly sweaters and the red bows and the green elf shoes, we'd look really foolish and ostracized from the world, wouldn't we? You know, with all the things that are happening um, in our country, in America, as I sit back, I kind of, I don't evaluate things and I don't really meditate them on them as much as, uh, you know, as a man of color living in America, I don't process it that much on that tip. Um, but I do sit back as I look at things that are happening in America, and I do begin to ask a lot of questions about the church. What kind of impact do these social issues, uh, uh, do they have on the church? How do people view the church in light of this? Are we relevant? Is our message relevant? Do people even care what we have to say uh, when you look at 
things that are happening. It's been a crazy, you know, <laughs> it's been a crazy month if you've been living in Memphis. If you've been doing work in places like some of uh, me and a couple of brothers in here do work, especially uh, where we hope to plant a church in 38122, uh, where we literally we're going to a meeting tonight to try to raise community and morale because there will be teachers who will have to be let go because the enrollment is so far beneath where it needs to be. People won't register for school because they're scared they're going to get picked up and deported and let go, right? So it's been a crazy week and month if you've been living in Memphis. If you've even had a post, it's been a crazy week if you've been living in America. Okay, amen, somebody? Amen. Right? And so I begin to ask these questions about the church. My primary allegiance, amen, somebody. The kingdom of God that I've been ransomed into, what, what? What is our response? How do we need to be viewed? I picked this passage long before any of this stuff happened or any of this entered my consciousness uh, because I was just struck by the language in the verse. It was such an encouragement to me as uh, someone who's potentially getting ready to start a brand new faith community. And I wanted to share it as an encouragement, but it seems like it's even more relevant uh, to the time and space that we're living in right now. In 1 Corinthians, we're going to spend some time uh, just looking at the first chapter this morning. And, you know, as an athlete, you know, I spend a lot of time, you know, the first 10, 20 minutes of practice, we call them individuals, right? If you're an athlete, you probably know it. Whether you're a baseball player, basketball player, soccer player, you don't get straight into team scrimmage. You get there and you work on just the basic uh, 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 skills that are required to do your particular role on the field whether they're, you know, dive saves or whether it's stretching, whether it's just forming the jump shooting, we just work the fundamentals. And today, I would just want to let Paul, our coach this morning, our trainer, blow the whistle and just remind us of some of the basic fundamentals that we need to begin to always stay cognizant of as Christians, right? And, but the funky thing about, <laughs> the funky thing about, our fundamentals as Christians is, you know, my buddy Will Cranford back there, you know, we could play horse, and that's a bad white boy. You know what I'm saying? It's a bad white boy. So I had to give it to him now. If we go into the gym, he's going to shoot me out, right? But he's got such a pretty form, you know what I mean? He, he raises up elbow, follow through. Man, it's just it's beautiful. You know what I'm saying? It's just beautiful. But, you know, there's a kid coming out of college um, who's in, on the Lakers now. His name is Lonzo Ball. And if any of you have kind of been watching ESPN, you know his crazy dad. But he's got this crazy form on his jump shot. It's like it comes and he literally brings it from across his body, cocks it here, and he's shooting it on the left side of his face, right? And people were always, man, that shot is so funky. It's unorthodox. It'll never be able to get off in the NBA. Now, so far, so good. It's looking good. But what I'm trying to say is that's what our fundamentals look like. Our fundamentals won't ever look like Will Cranford's. It's not going to ever look like Steph Curry and Klay Thompson's where it's, man, that's just so beautiful, natural, and smooth. And it's going to be the unorthodox thing. What Paul is going to tell us about our fundamentals is nobody's going to ever look at what we consider basic Christian ethics and say, yeah, that's what I want to do. And Paul reminds us, our fundamentals equal foolishness. To be a Christ, to be a Christian is to be a fool. 
Amen. Shall we dive into it? Let's go to 1 Corinthians 1. We're going to read a considerable chunk of this passage just because I couldn't decide which one I wanted to lean on most, <laughs> which is like anti-hermeneutical rules, but we're going to do it anyway. <laughs> Let's start at verse 17, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 17. It says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with clever words, I'm reading out of the Holman, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. For to those who are perishing, the message of the cross is foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it's God's power. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will set aside the, under, set aside the understanding of the experts. Where is the philosopher? Where is the scholar? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believed through the foolishness of the message preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called both Jew and Greek, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. I'm going to read it one more time because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Brothers, consider your calling. Not many are wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen the world's foolish things to shame the wise, and God has chosen the world's weak things to shame the strong. God has chosen the world's insignificant and despised things, the things viewed as nothing, so he might bring to nothing the things that are viewed as something so that no one can boast in his presence. But from him you are in Christ, who for us became wisdom from God, as well as righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that as it is written, the one who boasts must boast in the Lord. Amen? Amen. We pick up the discourse right off the heels in, in the 10th through the kind of 16th verse. Paul is kind of rebuking the Corinthian church because they have allowed some factions to kind of seep in. And so ultimately uh, what we see is this, this crazily gifted church, the church at Corinth had just, you can see it in the 12th and 13th chapters, like these, this church had great giftings. And matter of fact, they even had a... Uh, a, a a very clear understanding of doctrine and divine truth, maybe more so than any other church in their kind of era. They kind of got it like that. Um, but they had this little, this little bug that kind of sept in there, and so they started separating themselves, and it seems like maybe even based on who was baptizing them. We think that there are at least three or four factions that are existing in the Corinthian church. And so some by the crazily gifted Apollos, some even for Paul, some for others, but they've kind of separated themselves into these four factions. And so Paul's going to quickly annihilate this whole idea of how you separate yourself. Because in the 13th verse, you don't have to turn there, he's going to ask three rhetorical questions that kind of just nip it in the bud. He says, is Christ divided? What do we say, fellas? No. Right. Was Paul crucified for you? 
No, no, no. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? No, right? As a matter of fact, even in the, in the, in the 14th verse, he's going to go on to say, hey, man, I thank God that I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Paul says, I'm not contributing to this nonsense, right, of division, right? In the middle of kind of correcting them, and maybe we've done this as parents, Sometimes we start out on one tangent and we're kind of addressing one issue. And then we're like, man, you know what? This is so trivial. I need to just kind of reprioritize all of our agenda. And he says, you know what? Forget baptism. For Christ, this is verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. He says, listen, man. Even the blessed sacrament of baptism has to take a back seat to the proclamation of God's truth. That's just our first point. Just because I know I got some uh, pretty anal brothers out there, you were waiting to fill in that space. You've been waiting. You're like, what is, what is, what is, what is, right? So our first foolish priority today is the proclamation of the gospel. Our priorities are foolish. We do, our priorities are foolish. He says, listen, man, Matthew 28, 19, go ye therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptize. Now, baptize is a part of that, but what is the primary principle of the Great Commission? It's to go out and to make disciples. And let's just put it like this. If we're not going out and witnessing and making disciples, there won't be anybody to baptize. So we don't have to have the argument over pedo, <laughs> infant baptism, or believer baptism, right? That's not even relevant, right? Because if ain't nobody being witness to, ain't nobody getting dunked or immersed or sprinkled, right? <laughs> there it is, right? The witnessing, the proclaiming of the truth is the Christian's primary responsibility. These were the instructions that were left by the Lord Jesus. You will, re, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you to be my what? To be my witnesses. This is what we do, right? We can never divorce the message from who we are. Who we are, what we say can never be divorced from what it is that we do. I think the church has forgotten its primary function. That's what I think. Uh, this is self-evaluation. I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about us. I think somehow, somewhere, some way, we forgot that 1 Peter 2 and 9, that our primary function as God's possession, his own special possession, his royal priesthood, his holy nation, was to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness into the marvelous light. That's what we were left here to do. That's part of our primary function. I think we've forgotten that. We are absolutely concerned with human flourishing. We are absolutely concerned with blight in our city. We are absolutely concerned with people who are hurting. We are absolutely concerned with young boys who grow up without dads. We are absolutely concerned with women who are suffering from domestic violence. We are absolutely concerned with, with immigrants and aliens who don't have a home. We're concerned with all of that. But the primary thing we're concerned with it's heralding that people who were lost can be found. 
that there's a life that I know you're hungering for that, you know what, in Christ Jesus you can find. That's, who else is going to say that? Is the boys and girls going to say that? We got to make sure, for the Corinthian church, Paul had to check them to make sure they didn't raise baptism above the proclamation of God's truth. But what is it for us? Is there anything in our lives and in our current system that is competing for the priority of the proclamation of God's truth? What is it? And it can't just be in our church. I'm sorry, y'all. This has got to be our primary focus inside of the walls and outside of the walls. We got to preach it at both levels. It can't just come from the pulpit. It can't just come from the guy who got the masters and the doctorate. It's got to come from the lay people. It's got to come like acts from these unlearned fishermen. Not just the temple, not just the synagogue, not just Paul, but it's all of our responsibilities. Amen, somebody. Lights and walls. Man, it's a Dr. Paul Ebert, who's a missiological anthropologist, and he, he was a, formerly a Mennonite. Listen to what he says about his heritage and their relationship to the gospel. He says, the first generation was known to be a people preoccupied with the gospel, but who also felt there were certain social responsibilities for which they needed to be concerned. The second generation was known to be those who assumed the gospel, but were increasingly absorbed with social responsibility. The third generation abandoned the gospel altogether and consequently became altogether preoccupied with social responsibility. The pastor who told this story at a Southeastern Baptist Seminary, his name Art Azertia, he says, what a frightening trajectory. He said, but we must assume abandonment. We've got to assume that the pressures of this world will start drawing some of us out to reorder our priorities in a way that we kind of maybe start just assuming that we're prioritizing the gospel and we're keeping it first. And then the slippery slope leads us to kind of just drop it all together. Are we assuming that it's Christ-centered always, inside and outside of the church? Are we just assuming that? And will we be surprised in 20 years when we find out our, our churches are nothing else but glorified Kiwanis Club? All you are is just another after-school program. But you don't have the words of life no more. You don't prioritize them. You don't even believe them. We got to prioritize the proclamation. That's what we've been left here to do. It's foolish, y'all. It's a foolish priority. But it's not only a foolish priority. Here's your next blank. It's a foolish message. You see verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Just in case you're confused about what this foolish message is, it's the word of the cross. It's, it's the testimony about the death of an innocent man who died in the place for our sins. It's the declaration that he not only died, but he rose victorious over sin and death. It's the news that based on that work, 
repentant sinners can be forgiven of their sins. That's the foolish message of the cross. We got to prioritize it and we got to embrace the foolishness. You know, there are plenty of churches now who uh, are doing some little funky things. There's, I, I, I don't want to mislabel them, but there's some churches that we only read uh, the red print of the Bible, right? It's not all in there. It's not all inspired. And Jesus is all about love and anything that kind of counters Jesus loving of everybody in indiscriminately, unconditionally, we absolutely reject. You will see in churches now, even when they take the sacred hour of gospel proclamation, they won't even dare to say that some of their people would be living in sin. They're just making mistakes, right? right? Oh, there's just struggles. But there's never any contradiction to a God who has a standard, who demands nothing less of you hitting that standard or you putting your faith in his son. It's being kind of read out of churches. You know, one of the craziest things is I sat, we were at a, um, a pastoral meeting as we were kind of just trying to digest the, uh, the recent events at Charlottesville together. And we were sitting at a table and these are, this was a, 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 a trans you know, interdenominational service. So we're sitting with different pastors from different places, different theological backgrounds, and we're sitting at the table and we're talking about racism. And the pastor says, you know what? I just think that, and I believe that it's scientifically proven that racism is an illness. And I was like, okay, I'm kind of tracking with you there. Okay, okay. <laughs> All right, I'm not, I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna dump you out yet, okay? I'm just leaning, all right? He says, yeah, I believe that racism is an illness and that, you know what, we really need our clinical psychologists to lead the way. I was like, yo. Now, I understand if somebody who did not have the Christian worldview was saying that, I would understand that. But I would even understand if you said it was an illness. I can get with that. But what I don't understand is how we're not connecting it to sin. It's a brokenness issue. It's a fallenness issue. We don't want to talk about it. We don't think that our foolish message is relevant anymore. I keep hearing people say, yeah, it's the gospel, but what do you mean? What you mean? Yeah, you know, I know what the scripture says, but are we guilty? Because our understanding of sin and brokenness makes it clear that we're all radically depraved, rotten to the core. Our wills are ill, they're frail, and they're broken. And given the option between a life of destruction and a life of blessing, we will always choose destruction without the Holy Spirit renewing our hearts. We, we ought to get it. The world, I mean, I was listening to secular radio. I think I was listening to NSP, and they're like, man, you know what? I just can't believe the world is acting like this. Haven't we progressed? And I'm like, what you, what you mean? For the Christian, we know better than to ever assume that there was ever any golden age of society. Men are just as evil as when Adam or Abel killed Cain or Cain killed Abel. We know this. We know that there's something disturbingly wrong with us. 
But how many times do we inject our foolish message into the conversation? I think the world will be surprised that that actually makes sense. But are we ashamed? Come on, man. You got an opinion about everything. Even you old men got Facebook pages. You got opinion about everything, but when it comes time to interject some Christocentric worldview, uh-oh. Because I think you started believing it was foolishness too. See, it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power and the wisdom of God. Makes perfect sense to us. Come on. Our priorities are foolish. The message is foolish. It, and it's just, it's, it's just part and parcel with God's way. God's way is just foolish. Who would send their champion to conquer the world by dying? Who does that? I'm going to take over the world. but I'm going to do it by dying. Let's read, man, verse 20 through 25, just to refresh. Let's go back to the text. It says, where is the philosopher? Where is the scholar? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of the message preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks' wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and the foolishness to the Gentiles. And yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. Because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Paul says that the Jews, they, re they required external supernatural evidence as grounds of their faith, which was typical, right? You've heard this through the New Testament. You'll see them say, what miraculous sign will you give? They were even looking for a militant leader to come and overthrow Roman occupation. That's what they were looking for. Even the Romans, we were in our history of Christianity class. Even the Romans looked upon the Christian with great disdain. It's like, your God dies for you? He lets you suffer? See, that wasn't even in their paradigm. It's like they, they're like, what? This makes no sense. When we want something, we go to the east or to the west. We bring the greatest army. We bring the greatest ammunition and, and technology, and we take what we want. That's what we do. But your God dies? It's foolishness. Even the Greeks, they would receive nothing as true if they could not understand it and see its rational ground. It's foolishness. It's just God's way. Hey, build, build this boat that's three football fields before it rains. That's what God does. Hey, you're going to have a baby. I'm 100, but that's what I do. Hey, you're a little middle school teenage boy. You don't even have fuzz on your chin yet. Go up to the 10-foot Goliath. I'll kill him. It's just what he does. This is not out of his character. God's not afraid to look foolish. Neither should his kids. Our priority is foolish. 
a message is foolish because God's way is just foolish. And last but not least, our team is foolish. Our team is foolish. My dad, um, one of the sweetest moments of my life kind of happened last week. My dad got a chance to preach for the Alabama football team. And so we got up a day before, and uh, just a beautiful moment that I'll always be able to file away, me and my two boys with my dad. Um, and we were, uh, we were at the practice the day before at this first scrimmage. And so we're up at the gate kind of watching the players. Now, I played Division I ball, you know, so you always, even at 34, you're trying to measure up, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Just saying, just saying though, I was a bad nose fan. So, you know, I'm trying to see, I'm trying to take a, you know, mental evaluation. And, um, you know, it's funny because I was talking to Dick Kane. I was like, yeah, Dick, I didn't think they were that big. Like, they weren't the most enormous people I've seen. Until I realized that, oh, man, oh, that 6'4 guy, 250, man, that's a, that's a decent sized defensive end. Oh, that's your running back. Oh, okay. Okay. All right, give you that. I give you that. I give you that, right? Then, literally, there was one play. We were down, and uh, we were just kind of sitting on the sideline, and uh, somebody came close to the sideline, and he was being tackled, and some big old boy was barreling down, and literally, once he got to the party, everything just started flying. Mouthpieces, balls, like, that's a big man, and he's moving really, really fast, right? Um, now, if you know anything about Alabama football, you know their success is not – you can love Saban if you want to, but he got some horses, doesn't he, right? <laughs> if you're if you kind of anything remotely close to kind of following college football, you know that he's got the top recruiting class or at least the top two for the last decade, okay? His success is not a result of happenstance, right? This is something calculated, right? He's got five-star guy after five-star guy. As a matter of fact, five-star guys got to transfer because sometimes they can't even make their way onto the field, right? He builds the team based on the best of the best. But even our team is foolish. Because that's not how God builds his team. If God were on rivals, he would be ranked number 195 out of the 195 Division I programs that there is. There wouldn't be no player with any stars. I'm not crying yet. But it's coming. Check verse 26. He says, brothers, consider your calling. He says, not many of you are wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen the world's foolish things to shame the wise, and God has chosen the world's weak things to shame the strong. God has chosen the world's insignificant and despised things, the things viewed as nothing, so he might bring nothing, bring to nothing the things that are viewed as something, so that no one can boast. We'll just pause right there. It's just not the way that he does it. And I don't know why you think you're in this room today. But let me tell you that it's the complete antithesis of any other social organization that you're probably a part of. You didn't test into this room. 
You didn't have enough money to get into this room. Your birth wasn't noble enough to be in this room. There aren't any influential people who are able to put in a good word to allow you to be in this room. That doesn't mean that, that he says not many, that he doesn't say not any, because some of y'all, maybe you think, maybe you did have the money. Maybe you did have the family with the heavy name. But I'm here telling you, it didn't matter. It's, it means nothing here, y'all. And it might mean something out there, but in this room, nothing. That's not how he chooses his team. He does it the opposite way, the foolish way. I love this verse. He says, God's chosen the world's insignificant and despised things, the things viewed as nothing. I don't know how you kind of correlate this in your head, but we're not talking about a distant people out there. The caption of this verse are not kids from Orange Mound or Binghampton. See, now maybe this is really hard for some of us to grasp, but the nothing and the insignificant people is you. That might be tough for you to process. It's you, bro. D.A. Carson, in, the, in his commentary or one of his sermons on the Good Samaritan, he says, Jesus is the Good Samaritan. So what does that mean for us? We're the helpless person on the side of the road. That's what we are. Broken, weak, helpless, hopeless, nothing without Christ. Our selection, our selection and our admission into God's kingdom are all a work of God's grace. And I wonder if we've forgotten it. Some of us have disconnected the story of our salvation from our lives. And we can't divorce what we believe about salvation from what we believe about life. I, just one more time. We cannot divorce what we believe about salvation from what we believe about life. I'm not saying that we break any laws. I'm not saying that we, <clears throat> we, we, we totally overthrow our, our legal system, but if we actually believe that we got brought into a kingdom and it wasn't based on anything we earn, our nobility, our wealth, or our influence, shouldn't we have just an ounce more compassion for immigrants who find themselves in a country that's not their own? I'm not saying break your laws, man. But if this is your story, you ought to be able to sympathize with it. Amen, lights and walls. See, you spit out the theology. You got sound soteriology. I hear you. Depravity, uh, uh, regeneration, justification by faith alone through grace alone. It's a gift of God. Nobody can earn it. Nobody can boast. But your theology and your life don't match is what I'm trying to say. 
what I fear is even as we preach this foolish message into this crazy world that we live in right now, this world that's still kind of basing its societal norms on like ancient Neolithic, this is how we do it. We got to protect our tribe and our kinship. Are we lying? Do people not still think like that to this day? Man, we need to reinforce who we are, protect our group at all costs. It's tribalism, man. It's in our culture, and if we're not careful, it'll seep into the church. If you're not careful, you'll be a part of the group that's getting rebuked. We'll all be a part of the group that's getting rebuked in the first part of Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul says, why are y'all dividing yourselves? Why would you have any greater allegiance to anything else other than Christ? If you're not careful, you will elevate family over this family. If you're not careful, you will elevate political party over this family. If you're not careful, you'll elevate heritage over this family. You'll do it. But Christ has freed us to actually be closer to you, white man from some part of Tennessee that I ain't never heard of. I love you more than I love some of my blood family. I wouldn't have it no other way. And the cross has freed us to have that type of relationship. He's destroyed the hostility that exists vertically, but also uh, horizontally so that we can live in closer community. He even says it in the Gospels. Who are my mother, my father, and my brothers? It's not the people who have the same biological heritage. It's the people who do the will of the Father. Now here's where I, I kind of start rocking into my clothes. This is a little bit scary, to be honest with you. When we truly start carrying the foolish gospel message, and we prioritize it, and we start trying to communicate it in its ethic, we're going to receive some pushback. I remember going to my house. It's got to be back in 08. And we had my grandmother's house. We still got, we call it Maria's house. I got a real Maria, y'all. Real Madea. So that ain't just Tyler Perry. That's real black stuff. Right. So I got a real, real Madea. We at Madea's house, and there are things going on around the election and whatever, whatever. My aunt proceeds to say, I didn't mean to mention her name, but I did anyway. I love her. We were on two sides of the coin. I wasn't for one candidate. She was for the other. She started crying. She's cussing. My voice is raising. She says, you honky lover. Who? I prayed. I'm like, Lord, how is this relevant? How is 1 Corinthians relevant to where we sit in time, space, and history right now? I don't know about Charlottesville, and I don't think the, the real battles are being fought in Charlottesville. I think the real battles are being fought around our dining tables and our family rooms. 
I'm looking at people who cousins of some of us up there. I'm looking at people who ain't too far removed from some of our spaces. And I'm wondering if some of us have so prioritized the gospel and the new family that it creates that you'd be willing to stand outside the camp and be ostracized, maybe even from some of your biological, maybe from some of your social circles, to represent your new family. Man, this ain't about my heritage. This is not about our birth. This is not about what we have. This is not about our influence. This is about this new family that God has created by his blood on the cross. It's scary, y'all. What if I never get invited back to Thanksgiving dinner because I'm at odds? Would it be worth it? Or would you take your foolish message and just swallow it? I'm wondering, man. You, if you, you ask me, black man, how I feel about things happening in America, I say forget all the black man stuff. I say tell me about the kingdom of God stuff. And as long as you repping me and I'm repping you, I'm good. I'll take whatever heat I'm going to get from the black community. I'll take whatever heat I get from the white community because as long as I got this family, I'm good. And I just want to believe that there's some men in this room who be willing to grab all six of their family and their kids in the back who are playing quietly with their other cousins and saying, I'm sorry, but we got to go because we can't be here no more. Not as long as that ideology exists. See that? Come on, man, I'm not talking about preaching it from the pulpits. It's safe in the pulpit, isn't it? We despise hate groups. It's safe in the pulpit, y'all. It's not safe at your dinner table, is it? But the sweet message is this. A couple months later, I'm passing through, getting ready to go do the senior high youth retreat at uh, Pensacola. It's my grandmama's house. I got every much a right to it as anybody else in there. So I got my good buddy Will Cranford in the car with me. It's Sunday. I know my auntie has made spaghetti with a side of fried chicken. <laughs> I say, yo, man, this is my grandmama's house. Let me show you where I grew up. Let me show you kind of where I live. Let me show it. And, uh, you know, my wife is kind of a little nervous. Walk in the room. I didn't tell Will what he did. I don't know if I told you what you were walking into or not, but we just walked in the room. My aunt literally, I think, uh, uh, you know, into thy hands I commit my spirit. I literally felt something come. <laughs> it was like, whoa, she had a little bit of a convulsion moment. Like, whoa, whoa. She getting a little nervous. Will doesn't know anything. I haven't given him an understanding of who he's sitting next. He goes and sits right next to my aunt. My cousin immediately runs to me and says, Tim, why you bring him in here? You know she is racist. I don't care, though. I'm not going to bow down. I'm not going to let that influence how I do it. I actually believe this foolishness. This is my friend. He's welcome. And if we got to go to words over it, so be it. But look at God. All of a sudden, auntie says, hey, buddy. How you doing? What's your name? 
sitting over there having a conversation with Will. Didn't even know what she didn't know until she knew. <laughs> I guess all I'm just trying to say today, y'all, is, is there any more room for any foolishness? Have we, have we lost such confidence in the gospel that we're ashamed of it? We're ashamed to interject it into the conversation. We're ashamed of our, our, our ethic, how we view the world. We're ashamed of it. We actually do believe it's foolishness. I'm saying, man, let's not be ashamed. Let's share it. You don't have to be shocked at the reaction. Some people will say yes. Some people will say that's stupid. It's okay. We share it anyway. We live it anyway. And lastly, I'm sorry, Mike. I'm coming. I love this. But, verse 30, from him you are in Christ Jesus, who for us became wisdom from God, as well as righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. In order that it is written, the one who boasts must boast in the Lord. Are we really making the Lord our primary boast? Y'all see that quote from Spurgeon? It's at the end of the page on your handout. Did I give you all the blanks or did I skip some? <laughs> our priorities are foolish. Our message is foolish. God's way is foolish. And our team is foolish. But look at what Spurgeon's commentary is on Paul, a man who believed the foolishness. He says not only did he love Christ in his heart, but he had Christ's name continually on his tongue. For he was not ashamed of the sweet name of Jesus Christ. Honey in the mouth, music in the ear. Heaven in the heart is that sweet name of Jesus. Stop toning yourself down. Stop explaining why you can't bring religious stuff into conversations. Stop it. Put it on your lips if you love it. Don't hide that light. This world is dark. And it needs what only we can provide. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I can talk it real big. But the reality is, is there's some places I'm scared to go. Sometimes I start being influenced by the societal pressure. I'm like the little kid who walks into the middle school with the Christmas sweater, believing that it's foolishness. And I feel fear seeping in, and I, and I feel myself being ostracized and, and, and me not wanting to feel that way, me wanting to fit in with everybody else around me. And I start putting the message, I start putting the lifestyle away. God. Would you remind us that the worst thing that could have ever happened to us is to be abandoned to our sin and cursed and left for dead outside the camp. And the good news being that's already happened. That we don't have to fear anything in this life. And even when fear grips us and, and tries to convince us that this is foolishness and it's not relevant. Lord, would you 
Give us the grace to be faithful even while fear is present. Would you give us the grace to boldly proclaim our message, not just when we're around like-minded people, but even when we're on the adversary's turf. And God, when some reject us and laugh, we dust our, the shoes, the sand off our feet, and we keep moving. But God, we believe that someone's waiting to hear what we have to say, this foolish message of the cross. We love you. Pray for a sweet day for all of my friends and pray that you would rest, rule, and abide in our hearts now and forever. Amen.